Episode 168, Genesis Amaris Kemp, author of the book, Chocolate Drop in Corporate America. So my favorite mistake, and I have to chuckle as I'm thinking about it, is whenever I first met my now husband. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about our guest, her book, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markrabin.com slash mistake168. And now, on with the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Genesis Amaris Kemp. She is a creative content writer and an author. She's a self-development advocate, a visionary, an inclusion and diversity enthusiast. And, and I love this as a part of her bio here. It says, quote, a firecracker and a force to be reckoned with. So before I tell you a little bit more uh, about Genesis, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I am doing well. Are, are you feeling like a force or a firecracker today or both? Both. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Um, so let me tell you a little bit more about uh, Genesis. She is uh, a woman of color. She's a trailblazer who wants others to live out their dreams, goals, and visions. Um, she's the author of a book titled Chocolate Drop in Corporate America, From the Pit to the Palace. So we'll talk about that today. Um, she's been featured on more than four dozen podcasts and uh, in magazines, and then she started her own podcast, Gems, with Genesis Amaris Kemp. So I encourage uh, listeners to go check that out wherever you're listening um, to this podcast. And I, I, I hope uh, do, hosting the podcast uh, has been a good experience for you. Yes, it's it's been wonderful. I started off with solo episodes, and then it grew into me interviewing people such like yourself. So uh, I try to remember sometimes I almost have to put a post-it note on the monitor. Okay. Am I interviewer or interviewee? <laughs> so uh, I'll be interviewing you. It's a conversation. So I'm excited uh, to be having that with you here, Genesis. So, um, you know, before I talk about other things, you know, I would love to hear your story. Um, what would you say is your favorite mistake? So my favorite mistake, and I have to chuckle as I'm thinking about it, is whenever I first met my now husband. So um, we met up for dinner at this restaurant called Brio. So it's an Italian restaurant. I, I know it. Yep. And I literally had just got done reading the book, Think Like a Lady, Act Like a Man. So I was going through all the different characteristics of the woman that I did not want to be. And I was also coming out of, you know, a dry spell of not dating for two years because my relationship before was just very taxing because I ended up dating a narcissist and had no idea that I was dating a narcissist until things got bad. And it was time for me to exit stage left or, you know, end up in a bad situation. So whenever um, my now husband... But yeah, so we, we we probably won't delve deeper into that previous into that mistake. Well, let's just let it. We'll let it. We'll leave okay. it at that, right? Or unless you want to. But so anyway, so sorry. You met your now husband. Yeah, so I met my now husband, right? And 
um, I told him, okay, I don't want to date a guy that has this background. I need a guy with this socioeconomic status. What are your long-term goals? What are your short-term goals? So I had like a list of questions. And at the end of that um, dinner portion, I said, and if this goes right, then I'll go to the movies with you. So then fast forwarding, um, at the end of the day, he's like, yeah, you're a really great girl. And he sent me this, uh, mind you via text. You're a great girl. You're just very, uh, I don't think this is going to work. You're just very bossy, just very um, stern and just all these other things he kind of said. And I was like, oh, okay, bye. On to the next. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then here we are um, six years later, we dated for three years, been married for three. And then now we're expanding and having a new addition to our family. So it, it <laughs> thank you. And I guess my it was my perfect mistake because when you first meet somebody, you shouldn't come off very strong where it could cause the other person to shut down because you're getting to know that person just like they're getting to know you. And you shouldn't make assumptions because we've all heard it's it makes an ass out of you and I. And so I had to learn that the hard way. And in the beginning, it was very challenging for me because um, I've always been in a male-dominated uh, work field. I My background is oil and gas. And so he broke up with me for four times, four different times while, <laughs> while we were dating. Because he says, are you a woman or a man? Because I'm not going to let you boss me around. And my husband is eight years older than me. So that is definitely a perfect mistake that I use like professionally as well as personally when meeting people. You need to kind of be an observer, (laughs) then open your mouth and speak versus just coming coming out just bold and just straight out the gate (laughs) like you're running a horse race. Well, so there is there is uh, an interesting parallel then maybe to job interviews or first day in a workplace. We'll we'll, we'll come back to that. But so um, congratulations on um, little ones on the way. You said yes. right. Congratulations on the years of marriage. But I, I went, well, there, there was that part of the story between okay, this isn't going to work out. Bye. As you left Brio, how how did what was the was, was it you giving him another chance or him giving you another chance? What what happened at that point? Um, it was definitely him giving me another chance. Um, so we didn't speak after that message. And then one day there was just like a church event and he was just wait, like weighing on me. And I just said, oh, let me just reach out. So I sent him like a scripture and then I would just send him scriptures like throughout like various days. And he thought it was annoying, but he's like, man, this chick is so weird. Then one day I asked him, I was like, hey, do you want to come to church with me? So we're based in Houston and there's this mega church here called Lakewood. So I was like, oh, let's go to Lakewood because that's, you know, that's like a soft introduction for anyone who's not like super religious. It's more like motivational. And so he came and then the funniest, the funniest thing was I had no idea that his two little brothers went to the same church with their mom because he's from a blended family. So then I got to meet his little brothers and their mom at Lakewood and what a small world. And then she told him, oh, she She's the girl for you. I really like her. And I, um, she has like a warm spirit. So she kind of gave me that stamp of approval. <laughs> yeah. Good. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to go back. Um, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the restaurant. I've eaten at a, a Brio in a, a different, in, in the, uh, the Fort Worth um, part of Texas. Uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with the book. Um, Think like a lady, act like a man. Is, is that a book? 
that's, um, I guess, for, for women related to work or love or life in general? So relationships, it's a book by Steve Harvey, and then they turned it into a um, comedy. So there's like two movies out based on the book, and it's pretty hilarious. So is uh, Steve Harvey, as, as, as a man, do you think best position to be giving advice to, <laughs> to women or how? No, so a lot of my guy friends said, this book is a joke. You can't take Steve Harvey seriously. <laughs> and I was like, I know, because it and it almost ended a, rela- <laughs> a relationship. Probably didn't even, wouldn't have even started if I would have started a different way. Yeah. Well, um, sometimes, um, yeah, after a mistake, things find a way of working out. Or maybe it's it's a story of persistence after an initial mistake or uh, it sounds like a story of second second chances yeah yeah and, and i'd be curious you know to hear you know connecting it back to the workplace um being either in a first interview i don't know if that's like a first date maybe um the first day on a job like did, did you was there a pattern of, of, of being a force being a firecracker um <laughs> being too coming across too strongly in first impressions? Oh yeah, most definitely. Um, like I said, my background's oil and gas and energy. So that's a very male dominated (laughs) workforce. So I always had to like kind of hold my own just so I could be, you know, seen as well as heard. And, you know, most importantly taken serious because I don't want them to just think, Oh, you know, she's just a young girl just trying to come in here. So my first job in oil and gas was like a small mom and pop. And I began to, you know, have some people that were under me whenever I got to a HSC level, which is health, safety, and environmental. I was the manager. And whenever I would tell them, oh, you need to do your JSAs, your job safety analysis before the shifts. And at first they went from seeing me as like their friend, because before I got promoted, like I would always chit chat with the shop guys. But then whenever I stepped into that authority, they're like, oh, you're very aggressive. I've had some of the guys call me the B word and other not so nice words because because I said, okay, there's a time to have fun and there's a time to be serious. There's a time to separate the personal with the professionalism. And when it's time to work, I want you to do your job and I want you to do a darn good job at it. And just holding your own there. Um, I guess my personality can be very strong and very demanding. And I guess some people say, like looking at the signs, I'm a Leo, I'm an August baby. So they're like, oh, here she comes roaring. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm that. That's I'm that lioness. A lioness, a force, and a firecracker. Um, but I mean, you know, there, there's that, you know, apparent and long-standing double standard um, in workplaces, male-dominated or otherwise, where a man who behaves one way gets looked up to as you know, yeah. aggressive, hard-charging, positive. Yeah. Yes, there are hard fives. And um, that same behavior, you know, Steve Harvey maybe is alluding to acting like a man um, has negative connotations. Um, I'd be curious to hear your your thoughts on um, you know, you know that, that 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 double standard, and does it apply even more so as a woman of color? 
I definitely think the double standards, number one, definitely applies. And then with you being a woman of color, because like, for example, a guy says the same exact thing I say, he's seen as um, confident and a go-getter or whatnot. I say the same thing. Some want to label me as, oh, she's aggressive or she's an angry black woman, or you're just being very bossy. I've even had, um, the other female supervisors pulled me aside and said, Hey, the engineers don't want to work with you because you're being very aggressive. I was like, I don't understand how I'm being aggressive when I said the same thing that my counterpart said, but maybe just in a different tone or manner, because at the end of the day, we're running these million dollar wells, sometimes more than that. And you definitely don't want to screw up like on an oil rig project. Cause that could lose, you could be, um, in the whole financially you could lose lives or whatnot and it's very serious work um and then whenever I switch gears Mark and I go from being seen in a upstream setting to going working um in a chemical plant and me being the youngest woman African-American and it was kind of like the redneck culture where there wasn't a lot of of people there and to have an office job and then interact with the people who are down in the unit. Um, that was very hard because whenever I would say certain things, like you would see people in the meeting, put their head down, their eyes would roll and it just wasn't, uh, receptive there. And it wasn't, um, I didn't feel like I had the respect that I deserve, even though I had the same credentials and accolades on paper, to my male counterparts. So then whenever you try to voice it, they're like, oh, it's not about race. And I was like, well, what else is it about? If it's not about race and if it's not not about gender, then I don't understand why my point isn't being, you know, taken. Mm -hmm. There there, there could be the age factor too. Yeah. Somebody didn't want to take direction from somebody younger. It's a combination of, of those things. And I guess, unfortunately, the bias or the prejudice or the racism lens, you know, through which some people are viewing you, um, whether, you know, it's not, not even a matter of behavior, I guess that's what leads to the double standards. Mm-hmm. Um, but sorry, go ahead. I didn't frame that very well as a question. Um, no, no, no. And I was going to say, uh, one way to get around that is just start looking for ways that you're more similar versus trying to accentuate the differences. So, Like I knew, for example, okay, you like this particular food. Okay, I like that food. Or you like this. And I use that to kind of bridge the gap to like break down those barriers in order for it to be a conducive working relationship. And then at the end of the day, you go your way, I go my way. But at least we have something that we could tie back where we're not like at each other's throat. And, you know, that's a tactic that not everyone is skilled at doing because they're like, oh, I don't want to know that about my my colleague, like, I don't really care about them, but sometimes you have to care enough in order to, you know, lead the horse to the water. Yeah. And, and Genesis, I'd be curious your thoughts. How important is it for you, for people in general to have a role model or a mentor who is very much like you? So in your case, to have, um, a black woman of color, uh, well, that's redundant. My most recent (laughs) mistake, uh, a woman of color, uh, a black woman as a mentor, um, you know, sort of how, 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 how important is that as opposed to having a mentor um, who's, let's say, an older white guy? 
semi-important because if me and her are going through the similar things, like the only thing that we could share is like the commonalities of different um, situations that we've endured. But if I have a mentor who does not look like me, then that mentor becomes an ally. And then I'm able to see things from a different vantage point because they could probably give me insight on how people in their group are perceiving me. And then I could kind of give him or her insight on how we perceive them. And then you could kind of see an exchange of ideas, but then it also, you're also introducing that diversity of, you know, gender and culture, but also the diversity of thought as well. Cause I don't always want to hang out with people who necessarily look like me because then we begin to have the same kind of conversations. We're talking about the same inequalities and efficiencies, and that's not necessarily going to get us anywhere, but, you know, just maybe comforting. Um, and then with me being first generation American, my dad was South American and my mom is West Indian. So she's Caribbean descent. And um, some of the people in my family are mixed races. So I've always, you know, had that ability to see other cultures and travel outside of the U.S. and just really see how people should be treated as human beings versus otherwise. And it wasn't until like, you know, the late 2000s when I had like, you know, experienced racism in the work setting. And, you know, I remember coming home and crying about it because I had no idea that people would treat someone differently based on the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. Was that was that workplace? So that that yeah, it's terrible hearing about that. Um, was that something that was not as big of a issue growing up um, and through school and through college? No, it definitely wasn't. I went to a tier one university where there was definitely um, foreign exchange students and different people. I went to the University of Houston and then growing up, um, I live in Houston. So Houston is a melting pot in general with all types of people. And I grew up in the suburbs. So I always had people who, you know, were different than me and I got along with them. And, you know, some of my families made the running joke because the um, guys that I would date were always outside of my race. And when I married my husband, who's also chocolate drop like me, they're like, oh my gosh, he's black. I said, oh my gosh, I had no idea. (laughs) Someone pinched me. Yeah. Oh, um, as we mentioned college, um, you know, I wanted to ask, um, you know, as, as some of the stories that you, you write about in the book, and again, um, the, the title is Chocolate Drop in Corporate America, From the Pit to the Palace. Um, you have degrees in um, supply chain and logistics. Oh, the Zoom background is fighting the holding up of the book. Um, but yes, we'll, uh, and, and we'll have a photo in the show notes and a link uh, to buy the book. Um, but, you know, you, you wrote about choosing a major and changing majors. I did that a couple of times in college, different engineering disciplines. Um, I'd, I'd be curious to hear a little bit about your thought process or, you know, were, were there fears of, you know, kind of making a mistake in finalizing that major? Oh, yeah, most definitely. So when I started in college, like my whole entire plan, along with my parents, was for me to go to med school because I always said I wanted to be a pediatrician. And I did actually start off like my second job um, was working at a cancer center. So my first job was real estate and my second one was cancer. So definitely not the fast food route. And I remember getting laid off because they built a new cancer center with all the new like equipment, right? So I needed to find another job. And that's how I 
fell into oil and gas, but I was still pursuing like a psychology degree because I wanted that to be the stepping stone um, to really understand the basis and then continue down the path to eventually apply to med school. And when I transitioned from a smaller company to a big company in oil and gas, my first manager, his name was Scott, and he told me, what do you plan on doing with a psychology degree here at this company? That is like a pipe dream. And he's like, if you want to go far with this company, I suggest you change your major. So that's when I had hit the brakes like really hard. And I'm like, anyone can use psychology, right? But then I was like, for a older Caucasian male to just give me the blueprint and just lay it on the table, I was like, okay. And at that point, I had no idea what else I wanted to do because everything else was kind of laid out for me. So I, he's like, go to school the next day. I want you to bring me the degree plans that they have at that campus. So I brought two, one was supply chain and the other one was MECT, which was mechanical engineering and technology. And I was like, oh, I don't want to waste like my parents' money because I had already started taking these psychology classes, right? So I was like, okay, well, if I switch my major to supply chain, then there's a way that I could petition for some of these credits and some of them could be applied with a supply chain degree. So that's what I ended up doing. And um, the company actually ended up paying for a good portion of my degree when I changed Mm -hmm. my major. So it was like Mm -hmm. hashtag winning. Mm -hmm. And then... After that, once I graduated, which I was in in honors, I was like, okay, I don't want to be in this admin role anymore. I definitely want to be out in the field doing something that complements my degree. So that's when my second assignment was a raw material coordinator for Mm -hmm. PP, which is polypropylene. Yeah. And um, so, so you were working your entire way through college in these different jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's an interesting opportunity to get feedback instead of, you know, going straight through school, maybe with the summer internship along the way, where um, maybe um, you know, I'd be curious your thoughts of, you know, if, if, that, if that input, um, that, that was a, a useful opportunity, um, even if that's not what you ultimately end up doing throughout your entire career. Um, utilizing the supply chain and logistics degree? It was definitely a useful opportunity because when I look back now and I see supply chain as a industry, you could use it anywhere you go, like, you know, oil and gas, medical, that I could always go to the medical field and do something, whether it's procurement or buying or negotiations. And so I was like, you never know where you're going to end up. But as long as you have like a degree and a background with transferable skills, knowledge could always be applied. Mm-hmm. And you, in the book, you write about, you know, this, this, this challenge, um, trying to figure out having three different job opportunities. And, and I, and I think, you know, for, for, you know, somebody at, at that point, um, coming right out of college, the, the, the ability to think about trade-offs between short-term and long-term, like I think you know, that shows a lot of maturity, but um, um, can, can you kind of talk through that thought process of, of you know, thinking through the trade-offs and choosing that first job after the degree? Yeah, so there was three job offers. One um, 
One was a low salary, the other one was mid, and the other one was high. And whenever I looked at the options, I not only looked at the demographics of the company, meaning, okay, how long have they been in business? Do they have international ties? Um, I, I think I looked at the stocks a little bit. And then I also looked at the benefits, like what are the company benefits, like insurance wise, as well as perk wise. And then the op- the option I went with was actually the lowest paying one, which is where I stayed for seven and a half years. One, because that company was around the longest, so it would be branded by association. And I knew if I had that company on my resume and I wanted to go anywhere else that, you know, I would quickly get a job because that company did a good job with um, T&D, which is training and delivery. Their metrics spoke for itself. They were on you know, different um, charts for being ranked very highly um, competitor wise and et cetera. But then, you know, in the vanity part, I really wanted to go with the highest um, salary because I was like, oh, where the money resides, where the money resides. But then I was like, you know what? Money doesn't always equal happiness. Money is a conduit to provide for what you um, what you want, but it may not necessarily fill in fill your needs and give you that overall happiness. So that's another um, differentiation factor that I use. And then also being as young as I was, I said, okay, well, if I went with this company that I chose, not only did they have a 401k, but they also had a pension. And a lot of companies nowadays have done away with their pension. And so I thought, okay, this was the best option for me at that time. Mm -hmm. And then even though I'm no longer with that company, when I did get laid off in February last year, not only did I get my 401k, but I also got the pension, which was money that I did not contribute out of my own pocket. Mm -hmm. And, And so I was like, okay, so I'm actually gaining something, even though I didn't go in with the expectations of, you know, grabbing the grabbing all of that money that was on the table. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there were trade-offs between like short-term and long-term. We're trying to find the balance of, uh, it sounds like you were being very analytical, but then there's also maybe a time for gut feel or which, 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 which do we think is the right job or which feels like the right job? How, how do you kind of work so, through that balance? So with that balance, I come from a religious and spiritual home. So we prayed on it. Like, my family and I, and they were in alignment with the decision that I made. So that helped me with my gut instinct and that overall intuition. Yeah. Well, it's um, good to have um, that, the, know, that influence or, 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 or that input or the strength that comes from that to feel confident in, in that decision, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so one other uh, line in the book, one of the other things that kind of pulled out from the book was um, you talk about um, chocolate drops and <laughs> you talk about um, old vanilla males, quote unquote. And um, I, 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 I'm old. Uh, yeah. I'm older vanilla male. So that, that label or that, um, that, that phrase would apply to me here. And um, there, you know, you write about how they're, are different rules. And, and I would acknowledge, you know, I would acknowledge that. Um, it's something we're still all, you know, I think trying to struggle through, but I wanted to ask you because we're recording this um, the day after we can now say Supreme court justice Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, was officially confirmed. 
I'm sure I'm, I'm guessing you were following that closely. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts kind of using the comparison in the book about different rules, um, your, your observations or, or thoughts on our, our newest Supreme Court justice and, and the comparison of her treatment to previous nominees um, who were old vanilla, old vanilla males. So I felt with her, um, since she was the only woman, only woman of color and just making history, or now the new term is making her story, which is like, she's making her story, which is history. Um, they've, they held her on a different pedestal than they did um, some of the older vanilla males and some people even throughout nasty comments that, oh, she only got there because of X, Y, and Z, or she's not going to um, be a good leader or whatever the case may be. And I, and I had to ask, well, if you strip away, you know, her outward appearance and her physical anatomy, would you say the same thing about her running mates? And if you wouldn't, then can you allude back to say that it was, you know, a cop out statement or it could be race derived. And I feel like with her being in the Supreme Court, it's giving women who look like me and younger girls a fighting chance that if she can do it, they can achieve it as well. Because I think the statistics said um, it, no one in 50 years has ever been colored in the Supreme Court. I can't remember if that was the actual thing. So don't quote me on that. But I was like, wow, why did it take so long to have number one, a, like a woman or, and then a, a person of color. And I was, is it due to the unconscious biases or is it due because we never really had someone who, you know, really fit the credentials or whatever the case may be, because we've seen time and time again, there has been so much racist rhetoric in this country that it's unbelievable. And there's still um, not only in like against racist, but even within your own community, there's, you know, colorism and racist between someone who looks like me and maybe someone who's a little darker than me. Um, I hope, does that answer your question? Mark? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, it was uh, open-ended question to hear your thoughts and observations on the process and, you know, maybe just as a follow-up question, um, I, you know, I'm curious to hear, you know, your, your perspective um, on this question of, you know, um, you know, some, some complain, this is not me complaining, but some complain of, you know, President Biden, when he was a candidate, made a pretty strong commitment that he was going to appoint the first black woman to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And he followed through on that pledge. And, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's, you know, qualification and that qualifier. And then some people, unfortunately, I think only look at the qualifier to, to your point. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on, you know, your thoughts of, um, you know, that commitment to sort of undo some historical injustices of the white men having the advantage for forever. Um, does, does that, um, I, 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 I know I'm stumbling through the question because I'm sure it's complicated. So let me just try to turn back over to you of like, you know, does, does that commitment to say, yes, we need more diversity, whether it's here or in workplaces, does that at sometimes risk taking away um, from, from the accomplishments, whether they're academic or job related accomplishments beyond um, 
gender and race? I think so, because um, if you're saying, oh, I'm giving this person a slot because they check the diversity box, then you're taking away uh, meritocracy because maybe they got there based on their merits and not based on how they look. But if you're saying, oh, I'm putting this person in this position because they are a woman and they're a woman of color or they're Hispanic or they're Asian, then that's tokenism. And you're using that individual to be a token. So you could show outwardly that you are complying with diversity, equity, inclusion. And now the new um, addition is B, which is belonging. But then if you look at their qualifications and their qualifications do not align with the position that they are being slotted for, then can you accurately say that you're making the best decision for the workplace as a whole, for the government as a whole, or et cetera. And I feel like we need to stop trying to fit people into these boxes and break down these walls and these barriers and put the best individual for that particular position in in that slot versus trying to just check a box. We need to move the needle forward and get away from this check the box syndrome because we're missing out on so many qualified candidates. So when it, um, when it comes to workplaces, um, are, are there mistakes that organizations make when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion? What are, what are you know, the most, most common mistake that companies should learn from and avoid repeating? So one uh, gender gap is one. The second mistake I've seen is pay disparities because looking at the weight, like, and I'll use myself. So it wasn't until I spoke up after the whole entire um, BLM movement, which is the Black Lives Matter movement, that my my company gave me a $20,000 salary increase after speaking up. And then my CL, which is classification level, was bumped from a 15 to a 22 one week after I just voiced my personal stance with racism that I've endured and then the professional side um, in the vice president's meeting because he called on me and he asked what my opinion was and I just kind of shared my my story. And one week later, I get a phone call that was telling me that I'm getting, you know, a bump in salary, which and it's not like a a minor bump. That's a huge bump, $20,000. And then, you know, my classification level. So that's one thing. So you have the gender gap, you have the pay disparity, and then you also have, you know, the issues that ERGs go through. And ERGs are employee resource groups. And if you have different groups for each racial sector, then that creates more division because those groups may have this similar problem across the board. But if they're they're separated versus bringing them together to kind of share what some of the common denominators are, then can we really say that we're achieving something um, change wise? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so with that that pay bump, was that. Did, do you think they discovered um, a pay disparity that could have been gender-based or race-based? Or both? Oh, yeah. Most importantly. Um, yeah, because I was the only one on my team that was African-American and 
of course, I was a woman. And whenever we had a global trade regs meeting, they made a mistake by flashing up like a bar to kind of show the progression of the group. And my colleagues all were starting at a CL level of a 22 and higher. And when I looked on the screen, a CL 15 was not there, but I was doing the work of my peers. So that's how I knew there was a big pay disparity. And when I brought that issue up to not only my supervisor, but her boss, it's, oh, we're looking into it. We've actually been trying to, you know, kind of figure out how to, you know, get your salary increase. It's just very hard because the way you came in, you know, from us. And I just heard just so much bull crap. It was unbelievable. And I was like, supervisors do have the leeway to make changes if they want to. But if their hand is not forced into doing it, don't expect them to go out to bat for you. Because then if something were to backfire, then it would kind of be their line, their neck or whatever on the line, however you want to say it. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that company learns from that situation and, and, and you know, through through hiring decisions and salary offers doesn't create other disparities in the future. It's one thing to make that adjustment for you to look and say, oh, look, we, we fixed it for Genesis, but does that really fix the system that leads to disparities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, again, our guest today is Genesis Amaris Kemp. Uh, her book, again, is titled Chocolate Drop in Corporate America, From the Pit to the Palace. And uh, let's talk uh, before we wrap up about your podcast, um, Gems with uh, Genesis Amaris Kemp. Um, what, 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 what prompted you to start the podcast? What kind of topics and things are you talking about there? So um, when I lost my dad in November of 2020 due to med medical negligence, that really prompted me to start the podcast um, where I just started to talk in the mic about my grief journey and what it felt like to lose my best friend, my dad, and the person who has always been there for me and been my biggest supporter. So that it was just so hard and it was hard to talk to some of my close family members and friends because they kept saying, I know how you feel. And I'm like, you possibly can't know how I feel because both of your parents are still living. So you don't know what it's like to lose a parent. And um, I just, even from the religious standpoint, some people were just giving me these scriptures that I'm like, I don't want to hear that. Like, yes, I know like, oh, the Lord is good. And, you know, he given and he take it away and all that stuff. And I'm like, how can a person who absolutely loves God and is super religious, what, you know, been in ministry would give the shirt off his back to someone, you know, just go through something so gruesome as medical negligence. Now I'm not going to go into the details right now. And then after I did so many different episodes, a lot of people were saying how it resonated with them because we, we were in the height of the pandemic. The pandemic was just jumping off. And I said, well, I wasn't really doing it for other people. I was doing it for myself as a way to alleviate and just really go through the grief journey. Then um, I got on Podmatch and there was one guy in particular, he was just so persistent and reaching out and he kept saying, oh, I want to be on your podcast. I want to be on your podcast. Then I had that aha moment or some would say discernment or intuition where I let him on, let him come on and we did a segment and I just asked like questions, conversation flow. And then it just took off from there, the interviews parts. 
and now it's ranked in the top 3% globally. Um, the topics that I talk about complement my core pillars, which are to educate, inspire, and motivate. And then, of course, since I'm a big passionate person about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, those are some of the dots that I like to connect and bridge the gap. So I welcome male and female on the show, people of different backgrounds. I've had Christians on, I've had agnostics on, I've had people of, you know, other religious groups, because a conversation is just that, a conversation. And by just being transparent, that's where the transformation can take place. And you can learn from one another, even Mm -hmm. though there are differences. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I think our conversation today, you know, it's an opportunity uh, for for me to learn from your perspectives and um, your experiences and opportunity for the listeners to hear that and they can hear more uh, in the podcast is does uh, what what's the origin of of calling it gems so i believe that we all are here as gems and we all have something amazing to leave in the world and if you think about gems you kind of look at the logo behind me it's in the shape of a diamond so if you never go through the pressures of life you're never going to come out on the top with that refinement and it's just like whenever they're mining for gold or diamonds or whatnot it has to go through the pressure in order for that beauty to be birthed mm. that's very well said and um, congratulations on uh, the success with the podcast. I'm sorry that it was born out of uh, grief and um, medical negligence. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of medical error is an important subject to me. Um, it's it's a huge problem that that often goes unrecognized and and unaddressed. So I'm I'm sorry that your um, that your father had to go through that. I'm sorry that you and others. And your family had to um, to go through that. So um, thank you for sharing some of that with us today. And you know, and thank you for sharing your perspectives and kind of your experiences that led to the book, um, mistakes that ended up turning out um, okay. So um, our um, this is your first child that's on the way. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are all sorts of potential parenting mistakes that you'll be working to avoid, <laughs> but more importantly, learning from uh, whatever parenting mistakes I'm sure are bound to happen. <laughs> I'm in for the roller coaster ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, best wishes to you and uh, your your growing family. Again, our guest has been Genesis Amaris Kemp. Um, and again, as I said in, in, uh, in her bio, thank you for being a, a firecracker and a, a force to be reckoned with today. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Well, thanks again to Genesis Amaris Kemp for being our guest today to learn more about her, her podcast, her book, and more. Again, you can look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 168. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. 